0: Hi, everybody. My name is Winslow, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, it's, it certainly is an honor to be here tonight, and I, and I want to thank the committee for having me. And I want to thank so many of my friends here. I'll tell you, when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I was, I was so alone and so afraid, and I never thought that I would be able to do anything again. And I was just praying that if I could just find the gift of sobriety, if I could just find a way to get out from underneath the, what I was into and, and just find a way to survive another day, that it would have been more than enough. But the gifts that I've gotten here are so many, and it would take me all night just to, just, to, just to get through them all. The number one gift of all of sobriety is not living in fear anymore. It's not living with all the hatred anymore and the self-loathing and all the other things that went with it. And it's a lot of other gifts, too. For me, it's got a restoration of family. I've got a beautiful wife here tonight. I was in my home group last night, and we were cleaning up, a, and one of my friends there, a guy named Dick, said to me, he said, you know what, he said, we don't deserve the women we have in our lives. And I said, you're right. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was, it was one of those times. It was the last place in the world I'd ever wanted to be and the last place in the world i ever want to come. I really didn't believe that there was a program for a guy like me. I didn't believe the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous would work. I didn't believe in God. I didn't believe in people. I didn't believe in me. I didn't believe in anything. And I was kind of running on empty, and it took me a long time to get there. And I see a lot of young people coming in AA today, and I love to see the young people come in AA because they don't have to go where I've gone. I'm, I'm not one of those people that believe I needed every single drink I took. I didn't. I didn't need to cause the destruction, the terror in other people's lives that I caused. And when I see young folks come in that have their whole lives ahead of them, they pick up our 12 sticks, and they pick up our program of recovery, and they're restored, and they're offered a new way of life. I thank God for the people that came before us and showed it to us and kept this message pure. Tell you a bit about what it was like and what I was like and what happened and what I did to get here. I'm one of these guys. I I hear a lot of people talk all the time about taking their first drink, and some people say I was 5, some people say I was 15, some people say I was 60. And to me it really doesn't matter, but what matters to me is that first drink that I always describe as the one that mattered. And that was the first drink I took with purpose. And I'll never forget, I was just a teenager, and life as we are, and teenagers and everything is kind of doing us wrong, and, and I'm filled up with all kinds of these millions of feelings and this cute little blonde had just dumped me and, and I didn't feel worthy and so I grabbed a hold of a couple of friends of mine and I said, man, I want to go out and I want to get drunk with you guys tonight. I'd heard if I got drunk enough I could forget all about her and I could get on to something else. And I went out and I made a discovery that night that it worked. That if I put enough alcohol inside of me that I can forget. And if I put enough alcohol inside of me And somehow I feel like I belong. Somehow I feel useful. Somehow my problems are the world. I can actually make myself into anything I want to be when I put enough booze inside of me. And what's even better than that is I can make you into anything I want you to be. And that's the greatest thing in the world because for some time in my life, if i got enough booze inside of me, I'm okay inside of my own skin. And I was never okay inside of my own skin. And what I always say is the next day, I made my second most discovery. And that is when I woke up the next morning, you all came back. And all the pain came back again and all the misery came back, all the loneliness came back, and all the things that I was hiding from my whole life came back. And then I realized if I drink again, I can make them go away. Needless to say, by the time I was 20 years old, I was a maintenance drinker. I was drinking every single day of my life. There were plenty of good times out there, but I was never the type of alcoholic that drank for the good times. I drank to somehow be able to feel okay inside of my own skin. That's what was important to me, to somehow be acceptable to me and be acceptable to you. And I never quite knew what that meant. And the thing was, it was more important for me to try and be acceptable to you so that you would say that I was all right. And I do what alcoholics do best. I go out and I start to do things on the outside that's going to make me okay on the inside. Because it's all a matter of what I can show you. It doesn't matter who I am because I'm trying to forget who I am. And by the time I was 20 years old, I got married. And by the time I was 25 years old, I had three kids. I didn't know anything about marriage. I didn't know anything about raising kids. I didn't know anything about anything. All I knew, though, is the thing was is if you were to come and meet me on the street back then and you were to walk up to me and say, hey, Winslow, how you doing? I would have told you about my wife. I would have told you about my kids. I would have told you about my job. I would have told you about my car. I would have been able to tell you about any number of things, but I couldn't answer the question. I'm out there trying to chase the great American dream and trying to do things that are going to make me Okay. I had to come to you several years later to find out that this is all about the inside. i have always figured in my life that it's, it's what everything on the outside that I can show you will make me okay on the inside. And if I fix all that stuff on the outside, I'm going to be okay. And I kind of go along, and I'd, I, I was familiar with alcoholism. I was familiar with this disease. I had seen it many times. Both of my parents were very heavy drinkers. I'm not one to call them an alcoholic, but I used to watch my father put away a fifth every night of his life. And I watched their lives. And I had an uncle who died of a wet brain up in Bellevue Hospital up in New York. And I, and I saw the destruction there. And I saw what alcoholism was. But you see, the thing was, is I didn't come to you people in Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 39 years old to discover I was an alcoholic. I knew it when I was 20. I knew I didn't drink like you people. I knew there was something different about me. I didn't define it. I didn't know what it was, but I knew something was different about me. And somewhere down deep inside of me, down where it really counted, I knew I couldn't stop. But what I would do is I would go out and I would try and make it okay. And I kind of figured that I'll get through my life and I'll learn how to control my drinking. That single obsession that it talks about in our book. That idea that somehow, someday, some way, I will learn how to control and enjoy my drinking. And I was prepared to carry that to my grave. Because you see what, somehow in there I believed that I would do it. And I kind of went on in my life, but you see, the thing is, for guys like me and guys like all of us, life just happens. And I don't believe life happens to me or happens to anybody else because we're alcoholics. I never believed we were singled out. We're just trying to get through life just like everybody else, but it kind of finds us. And things started to happen in my life that I wasn't ready to deal with. And I, and I kind of remember it was back in 1979. I'm not one that I can remember a lot about my drinking career. It all kind of runs together. It's just a, just a couple of decades in there, and, and I remember certain things, but I can't put times and places on them. They just all kind of happen. But the year 1979, I remember more than any other year because the year 1979, I lost both my parents. And they died just a couple of months apart from each other, and they died from totally unrelated causes. And I would love to say that I was the good son, and I was there for my family. And I was there when it counted, but I wasn't. And I couldn't be there. And it was one of those deals that I would try as hard as I could try. And I knew that I had to get home a certain time in the night. I knew what time I, I would have to take care of my dad in his last days. But I had to get one drink at the bar just to make sure it was okay. i got to take the edge off. I'm not ready to face all these things unless I take the edge off. And did every single night, and I have many regrets about that. I have made my amends through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, but it doesn't mean I don't have regrets. And I kind of went through that way, and it wasn't long after that, and it was less than a year later that my oldest son, and he was nine years old at the time, and he got leukemia, and it, and it was a kind of a rare form of leukemia, and it wasn't good. And I remember on a Saturday morning we checked into Johns Hopkins Hospital, and and we took that little boy up there, and. Uh, <laughs> And he was hurting, and the people up there said, The boy's not going to make it. They said, He won't last four weeks. There's no way. And I remember the feeling that came over me and the powerlessness and the complete lack of control, and that I can't fix that. I can't fix anything. And, and the idea of powerlessness was for, so foreign to me because I thought that I could kind of control my own destiny, and I knew at that time I couldn't. And I felt like I was going to lose my little boy. And it's kind of funny the way alcoholics think, or at least I think, that I think in terms of absolutes. And when something crazy is going on in my life, and my life is dealing me some bad cards, it's always forever. And I don't let God have any part of my life, because I'm in control. And I always need to share, because my wife Barb there always tells me I forget that my, my boy, and I, who was nine years old at the time, I remember for three years we spent in Johns Hopkins Hospital, and And during that time, they would tell us over and over again that he wouldn't make it. And they said if he does make it, that he will never be able to do anything physical again as long as he lives, and that he would never be able to have children. And I'm happy to say that I talked to him just the other day, and uh, he's semi-retired from the military after 15 years, and he's in the reserves now, and he's got five kids. (laughs) So. So much of my knowledge of God's miracles and God's work. But at that time in my life, it was so real to me. And the pain was so real. And I remember what would happen. And I remember this like it was yesterday because this to me was a defining moment of the disease of alcoholism. I would stay in that room at night and sometimes it would get to be about 11 or 12 o'clock at night and that boy would start crying because they would do all kinds of horrible things to him during the middle of the night. And he'd say, Dad, please stay with me. Just don't leave me. Just don't leave me tonight. Please stay with me. I'm scared. <laughs> and if you're an alcoholic like I'm an alcoholic, you know what it's like when it starts calling. When it calls, you got to answer. And I would sit there in that room, and it was 11 o'clock at night, and I would look at my watch. And I knew the bar closed at 2 o'clock. I had to go out and I had to get my supply. I wanted to stay with him. But I had to go out. What I discovered at that time in my life is I discovered the meaning of what it is to drink against our own will. When everything inside of me tells me what's good and decent, when everything inside of me tells me who I am, what I am supposed to do, and how to be responsible and how to be a man, and i got to go. Because I don't have a choice. And I would walk out of that hospital, and I don't know how many of you have ever been to... Johns Hopkins Hospital, but it's like a city inside that place. It's a very big place. I would walk outside in the middle of the night, and there was a very long corridor to the garage. And I would, in the original vestibule of Johns Hopkins Hospital, there is a, a great big statue in there of the resurrected Christ. The thing must be 20 feet high. It's unbelievable. I would go there in the middle of the night, and I would stand there, and I would look up at that thing. And it had outstretched arms. and said, come to me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I would look at that with all the contempt in the world, and I would say, my God, how would anybody let this thing happen? I'd say, you don't understand. There are little kids up there, and I see them every day, and they're dying. What kind of God would do that? And at that period of my life, what I did is I made a conscious decision to separate myself from God and my fellow man. I made a vow deep down to myself that I would never pray again, I would never walk inside of a holy place again, I would never let anybody close to me again. Because I knew that if I let you close to me, that you would have the power to hurt me, and I wasn't going to surrender that to anybody. And I would walk out of that hospital at night, and at that time, people would recognize there were things wrong with me. And some of the best, just like most of you, I'm sure, that some of the best people in the world try to help us. They do everything they can to try and help us. And I people, believe these people love us, and I believe they want what's best for us. And I was on this job, and sometimes I'd go to this job, and I'd be sleeping all night in the parking lot because I couldn't make it home. And they would grab me and they would say, When's it we know something wrong and we've got to help you out, man? We just, you know, and they would put me in the same. They put me in an, in an aftercare program back then. And, they, and that was the year that I got introduced to ant abuse. And, I, and I, they put me on ant abuse and I made a wonderful discovery. I found I could quit ant abuse in three weeks. No problems at all. I could just figure out a way not to take that ant abuse. And then tell myself the lie that I can have one just to take the edge off, you know. <laughs> I only need just one. I told myself I had a lie for God knows how many years. Well what I would do is I would go out there and they introduced me to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I would come to your meetings. Hey, I gave you three weeks. Three whole weeks. I, I came and I would sit in my car and I would watch the meetings and, and outside of the meetings I was living up in Bel Air at the time and these people and they would it's the same like everywhere I go. There's always people standing outside, there's always a the camaraderie, there's always the fellowship, there's a shaking of hands, there's a sharing of stories. All of the love, everything that we find inside of these rooms, but I would sit with my contempt in the car and I would look at you people and say, I'm not like you. And I'd pull that bottle out from underneath the seat, I'd take a big old jolt and I'd say, Not ready, not yet. I look at your twelve steps, I look at your twelve traditions, and I'd say, It sounds good. I can't stay. And I showed y'all. I stayed drunk 10 more years. <laughs> I went out and I proved to myself and I proved to my family that I can and will lose every single thing that is good and decent in my life if I continue to drink and I continue to run my life in the course it was on. And while I was out there, a the thing was as things started to disappear, I started to spiral outside of control. My house was a mess and everything in the world. And, you know, it's kind of one of, it's funny how we lose things. You know, the, the disease of alcoholism is just like they say. It's cunning. It's baffling. It's powerful. It, it comes in. It doesn't steal it all at once. It's kind of like a thief in the knife. It comes in. It, it takes a little bit at a time. It just robs a little piece. It takes a little hunk out of my soul. It takes a little hunk out of the soul of my family. And a little bit at a time. It just kind of takes it away. And at first it's easy. Because it's stuff. I lose stuff. And at first, the car gets repossessed out of the driveway, then the power's getting turned off, and the windows are getting busted out, and there's holes all in the walls, and, and we've got to start hanging pictures in funny places in the house, and <laughs> furniture's getting broken, and there's the yelling and the screaming and the profanity and all that, and then it's stuff. But it's funny how this disease works, because towards the end, it's not stuff anymore. We start to lose our dignity and we lose our self respect and we start to lose the love of other people. And the lies that I'm telling other people, they don't even work for me anymore. God knows they don't work for them and they sure don't work for me. And the self loathing starts. And I remember waking up in the morning, coming to in the morning. And I'll tell you, when I used to come to in the morning, it was one of those things I didn't want to be me, I didn't want to be anybody, I just didn't want to live. And I'd wake up and I'd look at the faces of those kids that I had and those kids that I loved so much and I couldn't even tell them I loved them anymore. And I'd try and go through my life. I remember towards the end, and in those last couple of years, and things started really getting bad in the last couple of years, it got worse. And I was starting to get letters almost on a weekly basis that they were going to foreclose on my house. And finally the last letters came and they said, we don't even want you to bail out anymore. So if you're history right now, you need to get out of this house. And, and I remember that I thought I was being real creative. I would go out there and I would put my house on the market and try and walk out with some equity. And, and somehow I would tell myself and my family some more lies. I remember telling my wife, and I remember, I remember meaning it as much as I mean anything in the world, that I went to her and I said, listen, I said, I said we're going to move. I said, they're going to take the house here, but I'll tell you what. I said, it's going to be different. I promise you. We're going to move on down to Anne County, and, and they don't know us down there, and they don't know what we've been through, and they don't know about any of this stuff. And we're going to have to rent for a while, and I'll, I'll get you another car to replace the one that got repossessed. And I'm not going to drink anymore. And I'm going to be a good, good dad to these kids, and I'm going to start going to ball games and stuff, and, and all the ideas that we have, and believe in they're beautiful ideas. And the thing about a guy like me is I meant that as much as I meant anything in the world. With everything that was inside of me, I met it. But I never factored in the disease of alcoholism. I never factored in that first drink or the power of that first drink. And I remember I would get up and I would start to go to work. It was about two days after I moved. And all of a sudden it would start calling again. I hated sobriety. I hated it. I heard a fellow say that one time, I was on a tape or something. They said, "The curse of alcoholism isn't being drunk." He said the curse of alcoholism is sobriety. The curse is when you wake up the next morning and it all comes back again, and you know who you are and you know what you did, and you can't make it through the day until you take another drink again. And I understand that, and I understood it. And I would go in and I would say, "Well, I know if I take this drink right now, the shakes will stop." I was a shaker, And I couldn't stand those shakes. And I hated being sober. So I said, well, I'm just going to take one little quick drink, just one little shot, and it's going to be okay. Well, that shot always had a second shot. and always had a third. And then it had a liquid lunch. And then, of course, there was a stop after work. And then it was whether or not you're going to make it home at night. And it wasn't like this happened once or twice. This was a daily occurrence. This happened to me every single day of my life. And I never, never saw the insanity of the first drink. I had to come here to find that out. At that time in my life, I thought I had the perfect marriage. I'll tell you what. It was one of those things that, that my wife worked nights and I worked days. We never saw each other. <laughs> I would stay out at night. I was the kind of guy that when i get off work, I'd kind of start watching. I'd say, oh, all right, she doesn't. about 10 o'clock. want to be safe. I want to be good enough to get home. My favorite pastime in the world is drinking and driving. I absolutely love drinking and driving. There was nothing better. There was nothing I enjoyed more than getting a six pack of beer, getting a pint or a fifth, putting it underneath the seat of the car, find a country road. Love country roads. You turn on somebody, that somebody done you wrong song on the radio. <laughs> and just start cruising and talking to myself. Nobody was talking to me back then, but I was talking to myself. And I was telling myself how bad I had it. And if I were me, I wouldn't go home either until she left. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, it was on February 19, 1990, and I was enjoying my favorite pastime in the world. I was driving around near Crofton out on uh, 450, and I, and I, I was just kind of cruising along. And, uh, and there was two of Maryland's finest, and they didn't like my favorite pastime. <laughs> and so they arrested me, and they, they took me to Upper Marlboro. <laughs> And I'll never forget it. It was one of those nights. I'll tell you what. They left my car on the, on the side of the road, and uh, they took tags off it because I wasn't into paying fines and things like that. Was, and they took me down there and they processed me. And, and one of the things they said to me that night is, "We can turn you over to a responsible adult." And right away, I tell them, "I says, well, you know, I got my kids at home." And they said, How old are your kids? I said, well, I got one fourteen, I got one fifteen, and I got one almost eighteen. And they said, no. I said, is there anybody else? And they said, well, I said, well, my wife. My wife was working over in Beltsville at the time, and uh, about one o'clock in the morning, it was two, it was me and two Maryland State troopers, turned me over to my wife at her place of business and said, Does this belong to you? <laughs> And we were in front of her coworkers, and I intuitively knew that wasn't a good idea. (laughs) And it was one of those things, and she puts me in the car, and she starts to drive me home, and I'm thinking to myself, God, I don't want to be like this. And she's not yelling anymore. It was silent, so you could have heard a pin drop. And there was no more of the, why don't you drink like a man? Why aren't you responsible? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? There was nothing. She just gave me that look. You all know what that look is. And they just look at you. And you want to say, stop it. Don't do that. Don't look at me like that. I didn't want to be like this. And I got home, and I got up the next morning, and I stole the tags off my son's car. Got down, put them on my own car, and went to work. It's amazing the kind of stuff that we do to make ourselves okay. (laughs) For me, it was going to work. I never missed work. I don't care how sick I was. I don't care how much I drank the night before. I always made it to work, and I was always on time. And so I got to work, and I'm there, and I'm sitting there at my desk, and at 7.30 the phone rang, and it was her, and she was home from work. And there's this voice on the other end of the phone. and It's they going something like this. She says, I have noticed. You know, she said, Winslow, she says, I'm tired of it. So I am sick and tired. For 18 years, you have put us through nothing but misery for 18 years. For the first time in your life, I want you to do the right thing. Why don't you do something decent? Why don't you be right by me and these kids? For once in your life, please do the right thing. Don't come home. We don't want you here anymore. And I'm kind of sitting there and I don't know what to do and I'm kind of getting emptier on the inside and a couple minutes later my boss comes walking up and he says, he says We have a meeting at 9 o'clock. He says, You've got to be there. So I go and I sit down. I walk into this room and there's this little round table and there's two vice presidents sitting there and there's a head of the human resources department sitting there and they hand me a letter. And in this letter it says, We have noticed you've been intoxicated on the job on several occasions during recent months. you got 30 days to put your life together. You're fired. And they said, we don't care what you do. We don't care if you get sober. We don't care if you get help. You don't care if we take help from us or what you do. you just got 30 days. Now put it together or you're done. Now all this stuff happened in 12 hours. And I am convinced without a shadow of a doubt that that was a spiritual experience. I... I don't believe spiritual experiences have to feel good. <laughs> I just believe they have to motivate us to change our direction. And I'm sitting there, and I'll tell you what, they were there, and they said, they said You can go to rehab, or you can go uh, do whatever you want to do. And I'll tell you, what, I don't think alcoholics, we're not stupid people. I'm sitting there, I know I got a court case coming up, I got a wife who doesn't want me coming home anymore, I got a boss who's ready to fire me, or I can go to rehab. (laughs) (laughs) And on a Saturday morning I showed up at his rehab and I, I really, I don't believe there's a right way or a wrong way to get to Alcoholics Anonymous. I just believe it matters what we do when we get here. But I checked into that place and that was my introduction back into Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't remember much about what was going on there, you see, because by the time I got to you people, it was 1990, and I'd been out there for 23 years. I weighed 130 pounds. My skin was turning gray. I couldn't stop shaking. I shook for a year. I would come to these meetings, and somehow I loved coming to meetings, and I hated coming to meetings all the same because I didn't want to be who I was. I would always try and find a corner, and I would sit on my hands, and I would just hope that nobody would notice me. But yet, I wanted you to notice me. And it's kind of a funny place to be. And I came here, and that's what I brought to you people back in 1990. And I think one of the things that happened to me, and I remember it was like a, it was on a Friday night, and I was uh, kind of going to, they were carting you around to meetings. You know how it is? If you've ever been in one of these rehabs, they sort of put you in these buses, and they kind of cart you around. And when you're inside these buses you're thinking, oh, God, I hope nobody sees me, I hope nobody recognizes <laughs> me. You know, and, and I feel like I should be in the short bus, and, I, and I'm getting off there. And, and, I, and I got off of this meeting, and there's a guy there, and his name was Wayne C., and God, I love that man today. I just saw him just the other night. And, and Wayne shook my hand, and he said, Welcome to the Bethany Lane Group Alcoholics Anonymous. He says, good to have you here. And he asked my name. And I went, and I sat down there. And this is the kind of the way that we welcome people in here. And I, and I love the way we welcome newcomers. And I love it when I go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and there's somebody there to shake my hand because I believe that's among the most important way of thing in service that we can do for another alcoholic is to make it okay to find a seat inside of these rooms because there are people who come in here like me that are severely damaged and we can't do a whole lot of other things. And the idea that I could walk inside of that meeting and I could sit downstairs and a fellow would come over next to me and he would sit down and hand me a half a cup of coffee and let me sit there for an hour. And somehow I found the love inside of Alcoholics Anonymous. The language of the heart that we have of one alcoholic working with another alcoholic with nothing personal to gain. And all we have is our experience, our strength, and our hope, and our honesty to share with that person. And right away I warned it. I didn't believe in God. I didn't believe in your steps. I didn't believe in anything. I was kind of running on empty. But it was Okay. And even coming in here not and not believing anything, there was one thing I could not deny, and that's when I come inside of these rooms and I could sit for an hour. For one hour out of a day, I didn't want to drink. And I always wanted to drink. I carried that mental obsession to drink for close to a year. I used to walk the streets at night, I used to pace, I'd do anything. Anything anybody ever suggested to me to do, I would do, and it's not because I wanted to be a wonderful guy, it's just so I could get my mind off of the booze just for an hour. That's all I needed. And I learned, I learned what it meant one day at a time to postpone that drink as much as I could and try and be of service to somebody else. And people would encourage me to do the very best that I could. And I kind of went on, you see, and the thing was, is when I finally got home, I got out of this rehab after 21 days. And they told me, they said, if you don't do anything else and you haven't learned anything else, I want you to do one thing. And I want you to go to a meeting of alcoholics Anonymous that very night. They said, don't put that off. You can put off anything else, but don't put that off. And I showed up down at Saverna Park at a meeting called the Woods Memorial Group, and I walked into that meeting. There was a guy named Charlie W., and Charlie was standing up time, and Stephanie did the same thing Wayne did. He said, Welcome to our group. He said, Welcome. And he took me in, and there was a beginner's meeting back then. He, he sat me down at the beginner's meeting, and he sat down right next to me. And he told me what was going to go on in the meeting, and he told me about his group, and he told me about Alcoholics Anonymous. And he made it okay to sit there for an hour. Thank God I love them for that. One thing I've noticed about all the people who extend their hand in kindness to me and Alcoholics Anonymous, they have a funny way of staying sober, and I seem to see them year after year. And year after year, they continue to do the same thing. They have what I like to call comfortable sobriety. They speak from their heart, they speak honestly, and they extend their hands in kindness to the newcomer walking in here and sometimes the old timer that just needs to talk. And that's God's grace and God's love as I have found it today. Now, I continue to go through when I get out of rehab. It's kind of a funny thing, the sort of stuff we do. You see, I come out of rehab, and i got a whole head full of AA. And I come home, and it occurs to me immediately that my family needs some fixing. <laughs> Since I've learned so much, you know. So I go home to fix my family. And it's just like it says in our book. Our families are messed up. They are broke. Inside of our houses all those years, within the insanity of a drunken household, it is messed up. But they don't want to be fixed by me. They've been doing the best they can for years without me. But I go right home. You see, the first suggestion in my mind is I want my wife to go to Al-Anon. I want the kids to go to al And I tell you, I said I would have had the dog go to Al-Dog if I could. If that just It was important. Everybody needed to go to Alice something. You see, because if you all go to Alice something, then you're going to understand me. And you're going to feel sorry for me. And you're going to pat me on the back and tell me that I'm doing fine. And you're going to let me do whatever I want. (laughs) And that's kind of the way I was going through it. That was the plan. And I went through there until my wife messed up the plan. And it was on Mother's Day in 1990. I was sober for about two months, two or three months. And I always say that this was the most wonderful thing that my ex wife ever did for me in her entire life. On Mother's Day in 1990, she threw me out. We had one of those separation agreements where she got the inside and I got the outside. And I'm standing out there and I got these two, two bag, Glad bags, you know, and I'm just kind of looking in there and I got this car. And my sponsor always said, the only paint on that car was other people's. (laughs) And I got $27 left in my name. And that's my life savings. And this is why I share with you it was the most wonderful thing that woman ever did for me. Because standing out there on that particular morning, I looked in the faces of my kids, and I looked at my life, and I looked at my situation. And regardless of what I learned in the rehab, or regardless of what I had heard in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous about your steps and your traditions, All of a sudden, all that information moved from here down into my heart, and I knew down deep where I lived, there was that moment of clarity that I knew who I was, and I knew I was beyond human aid. I didn't have a good idea. I didn't have a bad idea. I didn't have any idea at all. I was on complete empty. I hated myself more than I hated anybody in the world. I didn't have anywhere to go. (coughs) It was the worst day of my life and the best day of my life. And I got out and I did what a a good alcoholic would do is I I ran right down to a phone booth and I called my sponsor up. And I wanted to let him know how (laughs) rotten I had it. And so I get on the phone with him and I say, you aren't going to believe what happened. Of course, he just says, what? (laughs) And I let him have it. He said, I've been doing everything you told me to do. I'm reading your stupid book. I'm driving these meeting guys around to meetings every single night of their lives. They don't want to get sober. None of them. I said, I'm going to meetings every single day of my life. And I just got thrown outside of my house. And he says, you got anywhere to go? And I said, sure. (laughs) I had $27. I found my way over to this place called Washington Boulevard where you rent rooms by the hour, and I stayed over there for about four hours (laughs) until I ran out of money. And I did that for two or three days. this is the act of love. This is, again, Alcoholics Anonymous and Language of the Heart because after three days he took me in and he gave me a place to stay. And there was something that was going on inside of me which I have come to believe, and it's part of all for me, the coming to believe. There was a reason it was starting to become more and more profound for me. see, because I'm the kind of guy that I wanted to drink so bad I could scream, and that's all I wanted to do. But when I got out there and, and I went there, that first quarter that I had, that went to my sponsor. I called a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I wanted to go to the bar, but I didn't. A man there offered me a solution, and I would come to a meeting. And the thing was that I'd find inside of the meetings, and it became very profound to me, there's a reason you people can look me in the eye, and I can't look you in the eye. There's a reason you could extend your hand to me. You could shake my hand, and I couldn't shake your hand. I would listen to the speakers, and the speakers would get up there, and they would share the absolute truth about themselves and our lives, as they were and as they are now. And I thought that was so remarkable, and I was thinking, my God, if I could ever get there. And I was starting to come to believe that whatever that was, and you called it God, and whatever you people are praying to, and whatever solution you find inside of these rooms, that solution has to be given to me in exact equal proportion, or there's no God. And if you don't give it to me that way, then there can't be another hope for anything. And I come into Alcoholics Anonymous, and you give me hope, and you give me a way out. And the people would say to me, they said, Winslow, get involved in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is your recovery. And they say, get involved in these steps like your life depends on it, because it does. And I would tell them I had trouble with God. I remember one time going to my sponsor, and I was real angry because life wasn't treating me the way it should when I was new. Everything didn't get better right away. And I remember screaming at him one night, and I was so angry. And I said, I'll tell you what, Jerry. I said, it, it's like this. I said, I'm really having a rough, rough time with the spiritual part of this program. And he just kind of looked at me. You know what his sponsor's doing? He said, "When's it? i got some more bad news for you. And I said, he says, the spiritual part of this program is kind of like the wet part of water. <laughs> and I wanted to kill him. <laughs> and the man told me the truth as he always told me the truth and I went out and it was one of those things that I would go home and I'd go home every single night and by this time I'm living in this, living over in Canton and I always say I, I got sober over in Canton before Canton got pretty and, and we were talking a little bit before the meeting tonight and, there was a, and I used to love it over there because the people there they taught me how to shake hands and I'd get my Sunday morning breakfast up at the 857 club and I'd be able to go to meetings and it was okay to be me and they showed me how to live a sober life And I got involved in my own recovery. Now, I went on for like that, and I did the 12 steps the very best I could. It's one of those things that I believe, and what they tell us is, is if we do the very best we can with what we have left, it's always enough. Always. That if I'm willing, it it says right in our chapter 4, if I'm willing to hang on to the tiniest thread of hope in the solution, then it'll be given to me. And that's all I had, and it was Enough. And I kind of went on, and I did my steps, and I would love to say that I did them well. I didn't. I'm one that had to discover that you can't continue to go on your steps until you finish the one that you were on before. And so unless I do a good fourth and fifth, I'm going to get up to the ninth, and it's going to clobber me. And I had to go through my steps kind of the hard way, but I went through them as best that I could. And I'll tell you what, it's kind of funny the way life treats us, and life has a, has a funny way and a lot of twists. And, and, and I was sober almost a year And through a very strange twist of circumstances, I got custody of my kids back. God gives his most precious gift to rank amateur because I didn't know a thing about raising kids. I didn't have a clue. Next thing I know, I'm living back down in Crofton. I got these two kids, and they're running the streets, and they're doing everything. Oh, my God, they're just getting in all kinds of trouble. I heard a fellow years ago. It was right up here at the convention in one of the uh, Alcathons. And I'll never forget this guy. He was, he was sitting there and he was saying, you know what? He said that he said, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is not a selfish program. It's a selfless program. And we all want to say, he said, you people showed me a way up and a way out of the woods. And he said, because you showed me a new way of life and a way up and a way out of the woods, it's my absolute duty to go back into those woods and help my family find a way out if they want it. And that was a hard lesson for me to learn. And I went on and I was trying to be the best aa -er in the whole world because I thought it was something about this. And I, I was going on and I was trying to learn how to speak good. And I was trying to learn how to do this good and that good so that you'd all think what a nice guy I was. And that particular year of my life, both of my kids failed high school. There was a strange kid. He was living in my basement. He ended up robbing me. And I was going around chairing meetings. I thought I should have had AA tattooed on my forehead. I was such a good aa And I remember going to my sponsor back then, and I'd say, what am I supposed to do now? He said, Winslow, he says, have you ever stayed home with those kids? I said, God, no. I said, I don't believe I ever have. He said, why don't you try staying home? And it was like on a Wednesday night, and, I, and it was kind of funny. And I, and I ended up, and I, and I stayed home, and they went out. And then I called my sponsor. I said, well, what's, what's going on here? I said, you know, he says, well, what would you expect? I said, what am I supposed to do? He said, stay home. Stay home next, next week. So I stayed home the night the next week. And over a period of time, I started to learn how to talk to those kids and become a part of their lives. Didn't know much about what I was doing. I remember going to my sponsor one time and saying, hey, you know what? I'll tell you what. He says, this is, the most, this is the greatest thing in the world. He says, you know, I don't feel like I'm talking at these kids anymore. You know, I, I don't feel like I'm, I'm just, you know, talking at them. He says, look, he said, when's he says? Someday. He says, you can learn how to talk with those kids. And after the years, I've learned how to do that. I have a very, very close relationship with my kids today. I speak to them almost on a daily basis, you know, and I love it, and I really do. I had to go on with my 12 steps, and that was only the beginning of my amends. I discovered that my amends are living amends. The thing is, is that one thing that I always kind of thought, and it's because I'm selfish and I'm self-centered, and i got this kind of mind that tells me that when I'm ready to do something, the whole world should jump in line and be ready to do it right along with me. But it's not like that. My first experience on that was, I'll never forget, I went up to uh, New York to see my, one of my brothers. And, and he had, uh, hadn't seen me in 14 years over something very silly. I decided I wasn't going to talk to him anymore, and I did. And I showed up at his house. And it was one of those things that I guess when you're ready and inside of this program, if we're praying and we're doing the things we're supposed to do, the opportunity seemed to just find us and all we have to do is follow And I showed up there, and I'll never forget showing up at his door. And his wife answered the phone at the door, and I'd never met her before. And she looked at me, and she said, Winslow, she says, your brother's not here. And I'm kind of like, what do you mean my brother's not here? He said, he's not here. He is scared to death. He has no idea what he is going to say to you after all these years. And I thought, wow, it's not about me. And I went out, and some of my amends kind of went in different ways. And I started to learn about forgiveness, but I'd lost both of my parents, as I'd said earlier. And I remember going to the graveyard so many times to try to make amends to those folks, and I couldn't do it. I just couldn't get through there. And I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden I was making another amend up in New York, and I was driving up there, and this woman started telling me all these stories about my folks, things that I'd blocked away through resentment and fear and hatred for so many years. And all of a sudden, I was just kind of overwhelmed with the peace and understanding and, I, and those amends I knew were made. And I could share with their grandkids the truth about who they were. And I grew to realize, you see, they did the very best they could with me with what they had left. And I, have doing, and I looked at myself and I said, well, I'm doing the very best I can with my kids with what I have left. And all I have to do is have faith in the God of my own understanding, and I'll continue to do the best I can. And I shouldn't wander too far from the flock because you people will show me how to get through. I kind of went on through that way, and I love I love the amends. And I remember going through, and I had another brother. And this is sort of the way God works in my life, is I went out there to make amends to this guy, and he uh, he was my best drinking buddy in the whole wide world. And that guy we used to drink together constantly. It was, it was always we were it was, and he put me to bed most of the time. He was just really a great drunk. In fact, he was such a good drunk, he picked me up at the airport and he was smashed. And uh, and I took him home and after his wife got done yelling at him for about an hour, I got up the next day and I did what it said do in her book and I cleared off my side of the street and I made amends to him. And I thought I'd done a good job. And he took me to the airport, I had to go to Los Angeles on a Monday morning and he And I'll never forget I was riding there. And he said, he said, Winslow, he said, you know what? He said, booze has sure caused a lot of destruction in our lives. So with our parents, and you told me your story and everything else that's going wrong. He said, I got a wonderful job. He said, I own my own firm. He said, I have got three wonderful kids. I got the best wife in the world. He said, I'm not going to drink anymore. That was 16 years ago. He has not had a drink. He has never been to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. He has never done anything. He just stopped drinking. And it talks about it. It starts to realize the difference between a heavy drinker and an alcoholic. And here's a guy who was faced with the absolute truth about himself, and he stopped drinking. When they were foreclosing on my house, my septic system caved in. Raw sewage was in my basement. The windows were broken out of the house. I didn't have any money at all. I didn't have anywhere to go. My power was getting turned off and the phone was getting turned off all the time. And you know what I do? I get a drink and say, it'll be better tomorrow. (laughs) And if they hadn't done all this to me, then I wouldn't be in the jam I'm in right now. And that's the difference between them and me. And I thought that I'd done a great job with those amends too. And about two or three years ago, he calls me up and he says, my son, he says, I don't know what I'm going to do. We've had to send him up to a place up in Oregon. And he's out of control and he's involved in all kinds of stuff. And, and he tells me he's never felt like he's belonged anywhere. And he tells me he doesn't feel like he fits in. And he, he says he's had these feelings ever since he was little. And my brother's saying to me, he says, I think it's all my fault. And I had the privilege of being able to talk to that man for hours and hours on the phone and share with him. Program of Alcoholics Anonymous and the Truth About Myself. Realize that my amends don't come in my timetable. My amends come when God seeks or sees that I can become of service to Him. It tells me in the program that I'm to become a maximum service to God and those about me. And I never knew when those opportunities were going to be coming. They told me something else. They said when I was getting sober, they said you take these steps, spiritual in nature, and you apply them as a way of life. Don't worry too much about work and the steps. They said, just practice them. And you'll get some of the joy of being rocketed into a fourth dimension. We will find a new peace. We will find a new happiness. We'll find a new purpose for life. All of those things. It is just incredible. A uh, couple stories I just kind of want to end with and, and wind this thing up. I never forget this. When I was about five or six years sober, I got a phone call from my ex-wife one time. And she she calls up, and she says, says, it's crazy down here, and I need my kids around me. She says, will you bring my kids down? She was living down near D.C., and and she said, my husband's just been taken away. The police have just been here, and and everything is going crazy, and the cops are here, and and we're just having an awful time. And I said, okay, I'll bring them on down. And I was riding down in the car that night, and and my son, my youngest son, he kind of looked at me, and he said, Dad... He said, you know what? He said, you know, you really hurt us. I said, what do you mean? Or I said, maybe yeah, I know. He says, no, you don't. He said, when you were out there drinking, he said, we used to come home. He says, we weren't like other kids. We couldn't have our friends over. We walk in the house, we didn't know what was going on. He said there was always broken glass, and says we couldn't invite anybody over because the phone was turned off half the time. Or the power was getting turned off. <laughs> There was broken glass everywhere. He said, Jason, Jason the oldest. He was a sick one. He said, Jason used to take us and used to hide us underneath the bed because you and Mom would start. And he couldn't help us, but he'd try and protect us. And I don't care how long you've been sober, there's nothing that prepares you for that, and it was a dose of truth, and the only thing I could share with that boy at that time in my life was... was, was Winslow, I hope I never have to do that again. And if I continue to do what I'm doing one day at a time, I won't have to. And it was a couple of days later, the phone rang, and it was my daughter, and she said, hey, can we come home? Everything's okay down here now. And I went and I picked him up, and I came on home again. And Barb and I weren't married yet. We were, uh, we were engaged, and we had a guy in our... Uh, dining room that was eating some spaghetti he had about 10 minutes sobriety and, uh, <laughs> and uh, we were just kind of just doing what we always do and, and my daughter and she was little then and she just kind of looked over oh, at please. me and she says you know what she says I like it here and I said why is that and she says I like it here because it's nice and quiet and I've grown to learn that as long as it's quiet inside of here when it's quiet inside of my own heart And that's what I'll transmit and it'll be quiet inside of my own house. When there's turmoil inside of my own heart, then there's turmoil in my house. And I have to learn how to listen for that. An old friend taught me that a long time ago. He said, you have to learn to listen to the sounds in your house. Because he said, if the sounds in your house aren't changing over the past year, then you're not growing. He said, learn to apply these things. And it was kind of funny. It was not long after that that, my oldest son, and he was in the he was in the Marine and the Army overseas, and he came home and he had married a German girl. And he got home and he said, You know what? He said, Dad, he said, I'd like to go on up there to Johns Hopkins. I want to see the statue. And he kind of took a trip up there and he showed his wife around the hospital that he'd spent so much time in, and he showed her the statue. And I remember looking at that. I've been up there a number of times since. And I look at that thing, and, I, and, I, and it still gets me. I, says, I look under there, and it says, Come to me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And this is the way I've found Alcoholics Anonymous, and this is the message you have people have given me. That through the action of the 12 steps and the fellowship and the love that I find inside of these rooms and the help of so many of you people in here, that I have found rest and I have found peace, to my, peace of mind most of the time. And I've grown to realize that when it's not quite inside of me, that I'm the creator of my own misery, and that I need to change my course. And I want to thank you again for having me up here, and I especially want to thank also all of my friends. So many have shown up tonight, and a guy like me who shows up so alone, and to walk in here tonight and have so many friends, and to be among you could not be a greater blessing. Thank you very much.